Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. On November 14, 1849, Margareta Maggie Fox and Catherine Kate Fox took the stage of Corinthian Hall in Rochester, New York. They'd made the announcement about the demonstration with the following words, quote, Let the citizens of Rochester embrace this opportunity of investigating the whole matter and see if those engaged in laying it before the public are deceived or are deceiving others. And if neither, let them account for these truly wonderful manifestations. Come and investigate. From the very beginning, mediums like the Fox sisters invited speculation, skepticism, and controversy, like the other Victorian entertainments of the day, scientific lectures, freak shows, theatrical productions, magic acts, and the like. The physical medium had to dazzle her seance sitters, whether she was performing on a huge lecture stage or in a private parlor room. 400 paying sitters witnessed the adolescent Fox girls' first major public appearance as physical mediums, where they demonstrated their ability to communicate with the dead. The Fox sisters' public appearance came after months of family turmoil, as wherever the girls went, restless spirits seemed to plague the house. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, in his History of Spiritualism, claims that, quote, every effort was made to conceal these manifestations from the public, but they soon became known, end quote. Contemporaries declared that when the girls were present, spirits were able to push through the veil just a little to make rapping sounds that the girls then translated into yes, no, and eventually an alphabet. After that successful first night, the Fox sisters' stunning performance went on the road, and the girls booked performances all over the U.S. and Europe. When word got out about the extraordinary phenomena, everyone wanted a piece of Maggie and Kate Fox. 
The grieving wanted access to their lost loved ones. The calculating wanted to mobilize the lucrative potential that public demonstrations of spirit communication could bring. The skeptics and gotcha journalists wanted the girls to disrupt what they saw as, at best, a farce, and at worst, malicious fraud. For the first decade of their rising fame, Maggie and Kate were effectively children at the mercy of the adults around them. Whether their talent was genuine or a trick, they were launched into fame and notoriety, and not to their benefit in the end. But as journalist Barbara Weisberg demonstrates in her engaging biography, the girls were never without agency, and together, or under the wing of their sister, they participated in and navigated the vibrant Victorian era of spectacular shows and radical religiosity. Their fame launched spiritualism into a popular religion, with huge numbers joining during and after both the Civil War and World War I. In 1870, Reverend Thomas Grimshaw received a spirit communication in which one of his regular spirit connections instructed him to recognize the Fox Sisters event in Hydesville as the start of spiritualism. Quote, whereas spiritualism has become a power in the land and may be deemed the great growing religious idea of the country, and it is well to revert to the time of small beginnings and hold in remembrance the first pioneers in this spiritual movement. Therefore... Resolved that this convention recommend to all state conventions and local societies to make the time of the appearance of the Hydesville wrappings an anniversary day. The services of that day to be conducted in each locality as may be deemed most practical. End quote. The Fox sisters were well known at that point, their story being already recorded in the works like Robert Davis Owen's 1860 Compendium of Spirit Communications across the U.S. and Europe. Footfalls on the Boundary of Another World includes a succinct summary of the 1848 events in Hydesville and was referenced widely by subsequent 19th century scholars of spiritualism. The Fox sisters' success lent the growing spiritualist movement the kind of world renown it needed to gain followers. Though, according to the National Spiritualist Association of Churches, the Hydesville wrappings weren't acknowledged formally as the origin story until Grinshaw's spirit message in 1870, the girls had long held a unique place in spiritualist circles. The Fox sisters' story has been told hundreds of times in autobiography, newspaper stories, biographies, histories of spiritualism, Victorian entertainment, women's rights movements, and many other contexts. Today we're going to share some insights into Maggie and Kate Fox's life, how their stories have been told, and why the way we tell these kinds of histories matter. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Marissa Rhodes. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, and especially our fabulous auger and excavator level patrons. Lauren, Hannah, Iris, Colin, Susan, Edward, Agnes, Denise, Jessica, Karen, Maria, and Audrey. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of this show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com backslash digpodcast to learn more. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that each of our episodes relies on the research and writing of historians and other scholars. Today, I want to thank Lisa Morton, Anne Broad, David Chapin, Barbara Weisberg, and Simone Natal in particular for their work. You can find a full bibliography plus footnotes and links for every episode in our show notes on our website, digpodcast.org. 
And don't forget, if you're interested in something you heard today, please check out these excellent books and articles. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And really briefly, just as a reminder on some of the terminology we're using when we talk about spiritualism. A medium is someone who is able to channel or communicate with the dead. A physical medium specifically facilitates that connection through some kind of physical manifestation. That might be the sounds of raps or knocks, or it might be a spinning table, or a piano that plays itself, or ectoplasm that emerges from a medium and takes the shape of a spirit. The story of the Fox sisters and their ability to communicate with the dead is the story that spiritualists today mark as the origin of their church. Churches don't typically spring up from adolescent girls, but they were in the right place at the right time. If the Fox sisters built the walls of the House of Spiritualism, the Second Great Awakening laid the foundation. The Second Great Awakening was a period of religious revival that started in the 1820s, ish, consisting mostly of Protestant movements in the northern United States, but not all. The Second Great Awakening period was marked by the idea that people could bring about the second coming of Christ through perfecting society, either through religious reform and new ideas about sin, relationships to God, or by perfecting society like through temperance. We're talking tons of religious experimentation and seeking, and that middle third of the 19th century saw all kinds of new religious movements pop up. In the first half of the 19th century, Western and Central New York was a hotbed of heady religious revival and radical activism. Mormonism and Seventh-day Adventism got their start within a day's ride from Hydesville, New York. And there were several utopian and intentional socialist communities founded nearby. For example, in 1847, John Humphrey Noyes, who we love to talk about, was forced out of Vermont because his Christian perfectionist ideas got him arrested for adultery, and he took his followers west to Oneida, New York, where they founded an intentional community. The Oneida community thrived until 1879, when Noyes got wind that he was going to be arrested for statutory rape, a result of the quote-unquote complex marriage ideology that he enforced in Oneida, and the community was dissolved in 1881. Fire lit, fire burn, fire extinguished. This was the Burned Over District, a title given to Western and Central New York by Presbyterian minister Charles G. Finney, whom Noyes credited with his inspiration for the Oneida community, because the area seemed to catch men on fire. 
In his 1876 autobiography, he wrote, quote, I found that region of country what in the Western phrase would be called a burnt district. There had been a few years previously a wild excitement passing through the region, which they called a revival of religion, but which turned out to be spurious, end quote. And of course, it wasn't just religion that caught fire in the region. 1848 was the year of the Women's Rights Convention at Seneca Falls, New York, not even 25 miles from the Fox home. Vegetarianism, abolition, and prohibition also found fervent believers and advocates in this area. We can't really know if John D. Fox moved his family into western New York in the 1820s because of the appeal of religious revival and radical social and political movements. According to Barbara Weisberg, he was a deeply religious man, a Methodist who knelt in prayer each morning and night, but his motivations were probably financial more than spiritual. Whatever the case, when he and his wife rented the little house in Hydesville while they waited for their own home to be built, they settled in an area that was just the right temperature for two adolescent girls who could convincingly demonstrate the ability to communicate with the dead. Sidebar. Interestingly, there are different reports on Kate and Maggie's ages in different sources. The account kept in the reading room of the Lilydale Museum in Lilydale, New York, says that they were nine, Kate was nine, and Maggie was 11 at the time of the disturbances. In his History of Spiritualism, which was published in 1860, Robert Davis Owen said that the girls were nine and 12, respectively. A more recent author, Barbara Weisberg, uh, who published in 2005, states that they were 11 and 14 at the time of the wrappings in 1848. An old memorial headstone in a Brooklyn, New York cemetery says that Margaret was born in October 1833 and Kate in March of 1837, which would have had them at 14 and just barely 11 in March 1848 during the wrappings. Another memorial headstone has very different birth dates, Maggie in October 1837 and Kate in March 1839, which would have put them at 11 and 9, closer to the dates in the official Fox Sisters binder at Lilydale. I haven't been able to find a birth certificate that clearly identifies which of these is correct. So it's safer to just say that they were adolescents. Back to the story. Or tweens. They were tweens. They were tweens. <laughs> As Uriah Smith, author of the 1896 Modern Spiritualism, notes... Quote, spiritualism, as the reader is doubtless aware, originated in the family of Mr. John Fox in Hydesville in the spring of 1848, end quote. After a long and bitter winter in a rented house just outside of Rochester, the Fox family began to hear raps and knocks in the house. They brought in neighbors and friends to verify the sounds. The adolescent daughters, Kate and Maggie, worked out a system of communication that the raps seemed to respond to like a rough Morse code system. The family and their neighbors and some friends asserted that the raps were a spirit attempting to communicate with the inhabitants of the house. Because that was taken as evidence of an afterlife and of the living's ability to speak to the dead, spiritualism was born. Of course, it's more complicated than that. Also, religions aren't actually born. There are people that take ideas and revelations and what have you, and they put them together and tell other people about them, and then maybe... If the conditions are right, those people might build a community or following based on those ideas and revelations. So there was a lot that happened between the 1848 wrappings in Hydesville and the founding of the National Spiritualist Association of Churches in 1893, and lots more that happened before 1848 that was rolled into this formation of a new religion. But that more complex in-between and beforehand is for another day, another episode, maybe even another project, 
Cough, Cough, Lilydale book that we're writing. Today, I want to tease out this origin story a bit more with a focus on Maggie and Kate Fox and their role in the development of a major religious theatrical Victorian movement. You know some of the story, but let's go on back to the beginning. The Fox family huddled together in their shared bedroom, terrified by the mysterious raps and knocks that seemed to fill the room. John and Margaret, the parents, were already in their 50s and probably kind of hoping that they could settle down to a quiet, godly life on their new farm once construction was complete. But instead, they were living in a rented and apparently haunted house. Night after night, the noises continued, keeping the family awake and disturbed by the phenomenon. But then, in a fit of pique, the two adolescent daughters began to communicate with the sources of the noises, a restless spirit. According to their mother's account of the events, recorded in Arthur Conan Doyle's The History of Spiritualism, her, quote, youngest child, Kathy, said, Mr. Splitfoot, do as I do, clapping her hands. The sound instantly followed her with the same number of raps. When she stopped, the sound ceased for a short time. Then Margareta said in sport, Now, just do as I do. Count one, two, three, four, striking one hand against the other at the same time, and the raps came as before. She was afraid to repeat them, end quote. But Kathy and Maggie's mother, Margaret Smith, thought the girls had the right of it and tested the entity that seemed to be in their house. Quote, I then thought I could put a test that no one in the place could answer. I asked the noise to wrap my different children's ages successively. Instantly, each one of my children's ages was given correctly, pausing between them sufficiently long to individualize them until the seventh, at which a longer pause was made, and then three more emphatic raps were given, corresponding to the age of the little one that died, which was my youngest child. I then asked, is this a human being that answers my question so correctly? There was no rap. I asked, is it a spirit? If it is, make two raps. Two sounds were given as soon as the request was made. I then said, if it was an injured spirit, make two raps, which were instantly made, causing the house to tremble. I asked, were you injured in this house? The answer was given as before. Is the person living that injured you? Answered by raps in the same manner. I ascertained by the same method that it was a man, aged 31 years, that he had been murdered in this house, and his remains were buried in the cellar, that his family consisted of a wife and five children, two sons and three daughters, all living at the time of his death, but that his wife had since died. I asked, will you continue to rap if I call my neighbors so that they may hear it too? The raps were loud in the affirmative. John invited a neighbor over to verify, and when the neighbor called out the alphabet, he was able to spell out messages because the spirit responded by rapping on desired letters. They asked the spirit more questions and got responses in a series of one, three, or five raps. They learned that it's the spirit of a peddler who was murdered in their house years before they lived there, his bones buried in the basement. Later, upon digging out the basement, they found bones. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Important people from the nearby city, Rochester, quickly heard about the goings-on in Hydesville. Isaac and Amy Post invited Maggie and Kate to their home, and Isaac, who later called himself the Doubting Thomas, a Christian re- reference that I had to look up, figured (laughs) a figure of this girl's spiritualist uh, movement was quickly convinced that their gifts were real. 
As major figures in the Rochester abolitionist and women's rights movement, the Posts had extensive connections with the elite New York society. They arranged small gatherings in their home with the girls, trying each week to contact the dead. The Posts introduced the Foxes to Eliab Capron, a journalist and the 96th signer of the Declaration of Sentiments that came out of the 1848 Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls, New York. And according to some, he became the girls' de facto manager, publicist, and later, apologist. The girls demonstrated their communicative prowess for neighbors, family, and eventually strangers and were able to take their talents on the road. Within a year, they were talking to the dead in homes and auditoriums across New York State. And within five years, they were traveling all across the country and even to Europe to give demonstrations of their gifts. Their demonstrations seemed to many evidence of life after death, providing much needed comfort and reassurance in the age of horrific steam-powered deaths and industrialization, the Crimean War, and then the American Civil War. Other spirit mediums, people who communicated with or channeled spirit, followed in their footsteps, connecting the living with the dead all around the world. This is the version of the story that you'll encounter in most places. It's heavily influenced by the Fox Daughters' versions of the story, which they publish as autobiographies, and the earliest historians of the spiritualist movement who were themselves believers. So it should come as no surprise that there's a baseline of belief in the telling of this history. Arthur Conan Doyle, Uriah Smith, Robert Owen Davis, and many other 19th century and early 20th century historians of spiritualism took their collected oral histories at face value and never doubted the validity of the phenomena that surrounded the Fox sisters. Some more modern biographies, like Barbara Weisberg's Talking to the Dead, are a bit more careful. While Weisberg, for example, tells the story of the March 31st, 1848 wrappings with much the same straightforwardness as the Doyle section that we quoted just a minute ago, she also introduces some context that might lead the reader to think critically about the tableau she unfolds. She describes the long, bitter winter and how the girls must have been deeply bored. Most folks will read that and think to themselves, could those girls have been playing a prank on their parents? Softening the edges of 19th century physical medium performances denies its richer history. At 25 cents a head in a theater that could seat 500 plus and fill, it was undoubtedly obvious to people like Leah Fox, the Davenport brothers from Buffalo, and the hundreds of other mediums that spirit mediumship could be a profitable business. Like any of the live Victorian entertainments that made their rounds in rural and urban America and Europe. From P.T. Barnum to Harry Houdini, if you could put on a great show, you could make a pretty penny. It's like the greatest showman movie. Yeah. <laughs> that That's about P.T. Barnum, right? I think it is. Yeah. It is indeed. Okay. Um, it just reminds me of the song because my daughter loves that song. For decades, the public face and evangelical element of spiritualism was physical phenomena, like the raps and knocks produced by the Fox sisters, but also moving tables, voices that seemed to emanate from all corners of the room, ghostly instruments that played themselves, and even apparitions with faces that resembled famous folk or relatives. Physical mediums like the Davenport brothers, Madame Desperance, Cora Scott, and Daniel Douglas Holm followed closely on the successes of the Fox sisters. Not all histories, those written in the 19th century or those written in the 21st, ignore the sharper edges of mediumship. 
Simone Natal's book, Supernatural Entertainments, really brilliantly argues that these kinds of mediums both contributed to and built upon the Victorian spectacular entertainment industry that developed in the 19th century. As she notes, quote, many spiritualist mediums were virtually indistinguishable from professional performers. They had managers and agents, advertised their performances in the press, and developed spirit phenomena characterized by a high degree of spectacularism and theatricality. And Natalie was not the first to contextualize physical medium performances in the Victorian entertainment culture. Robert Owen's 1860 Footfalls on the Boundary of Another World explicitly ties the Hydesville wrappings to a longer history of scientific discovery, prefacing the origin story of spiritualism with a discussion of Alexander Hume, Michael Faraday, and other prominent scientists, who all made a living, funded their research, and established their ideas through public lectures and demonstrations. Of course, there were also, from the very beginning, belligerently non-believer accounts and diatribes against the Fox sisters and their claims. Maggie and Kate were tested in Buffalo by C. Chauncey Burr and a team of Buffalo medical professors in 1851, and by the Sabert Commission from Pittsburgh in 1884, among others. Burr's team of professors found that the girls made no sounds when their feet and knees were placed on cushions. The Sabert Commission, a group of faculty from the University of Pennsylvania, investigated a number of respected spiritualist mediums between 1884 and 1887. The Sabert Commission found that the Fox sisters' raps were erratic, and while they couldn't detect Maggie's foot moving, they did detect some kind of pulsation emanating from her body. The Sabert Commission suggested that there was fraud in every case that they examined, including the Fox sisters, even when they couldn't explicitly provide proof of said fraud. I don't know, the, the like, pulsation emanating from her body thing doesn't even seem like proof of fraud to me. No. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm myself not a believer, but I'm just saying, like, that doesn't Agreed. say much. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's just like a observation of, of what she looks like when this is happening. It's not really a, a cause. <laughs> yeah. There are also historians today who privilege that kind of confrontational, rational framework when writing this history. In The Reluctant Spiritualist, The Life of Maggie Fox, Nancy Rubin Stewart frames the raps as a, quote, mischievous plan hatched by bored teenage girls. In an article from 2000, historian David Chapin writes, quote, In late March 1848, a few months after moving into a new home in the small community of Hydesville in western New York, John and Margaret Fox became the victims of a prank perpetrated by their two youngest daughters. Perhaps the girls were restless and bored after a long northern winter in a new home, or perhaps they were just naturally mischievous. But on several nights in late March, when they were supposed to be sleeping, they engaged in a little mischief-making that would have consequences far beyond their own childish intentions. Taking apples from the cellar, they tied strings to the stems and bounced them on the floor next to their bed. This produced sharp rapping sounds. Naturally, the girls' mother and father who slept in the same room that night, rose to investigate the sounds. But the girls, 15-year-old Maggie and 12-year-old Kate, most likely enjoying their ability to make fools of their elders, denied any knowledge about the sounds of the raps. The baffled mother recalled, quote, The night we heard the rapping, we all got up and lit a candle and searched all over the house, but the noises continued, and she found nothing, end quote. 
Though many scholars elected to at least leave space for belief in the phenomena, Chapin pulls no punches. Notably, both Stewart and Chapin's retellings of the story are also based on the words and testimony of the Fox sisters. After a steady souring of her relationship with the spiritualists, Maggie Fox gave several interviews, which most scholars assert she was paid for, that claimed it had all been a hoax, that her older sister Leah had manipulated Maggie and Kate into the fraud, and that spiritualists were fools. Fame did not, unfortunately, evolve into fortune for Maggie and Kate. Their older sister, Leah, was was able to leverage their popularity into a marriage with a well-to-do man. Mr. Underhill was her third marriage, after which she was able to settle down to a quiet life. Kate and Maggie were not so lucky. Both developed unhealthy drinking and partying habits in their child in their years as child stars on the spiritual circuit, and that dangerous behavior followed them through their lives. It's like child TV stars. They all just get messed up. Seriously. Maggie's fiance, Alicia Kane, died in an Arctic expedition in February 1857. Their relationship was mostly, it would seem, conducted over written correspondence. Though he was a sickly young man, he was constantly preparing for yet another adventure, and she was, of course, touring mostly in England by that point. According to David Chapin, who wrote a biography of Alicia Kane and Margaret Kent, Kane was particularly dismissive of spiritualism and spent much of his time attempting to convince her to give up the racket. He assumed throughout their relationship, much as Chapin evidently assumed in his writing on the subject, that Fox was tricking people. After his untimely death, his family agreed to pay her an annuity, but stopped after only a few years, leaving Maggie with nothing. She published their exchange love letters, a significant source base for Chapin's book, Exploring Other Worlds, Margaret Fox, Alicia Kent Kane, and the Antebellum Culture of Curiosity. But she never gained any kind of financial stability from it. Kane's antagonism towards spiritualism and his death undoubtedly had an impact on Maggie's relationship with the growing spiritualist movement. She became increasingly hostile toward other mediums and her sister Leah after Kane's death. In England, Kate married Henry Jenkin, a friend of scientist William Crookes, in 1873. Crookes was known as a lab scientist who was amenable to mediums and often used his experiments to verify the gifts of certain mediums. One who may have been his lover was Daniel Dunglas Holm. Home, Crooks, and Kate Fox collaborated in several seances in 1872, though Fox was not always reliable. She drank heavily, and on several occasions, Crooks made notes that she showed up to seances unfit to work because she was, quote, drugged, which may indicate that she was using opium or some other narcotic. Kate had two children with Henry, but before the eldest turned 10, Henry suffered from a stroke and died suddenly in 1881. Kate was devastated. In the decade of their marriage, she'd kept a tight rein on her drinking. In her grief, she turned to alcohol. Worse still, Henry's estate was entirely insufficient to sustain his widow and children. She continued to work. She was still, in the 1880s, one of the world's most famous mediums, but her drinking got in the way often. On May 4, 1888, Kate's excessive drinking led to her arrest and fining for neglecting her two children. The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children arranged for her children to be taken to the juvenile asylum in New York. As soon as she got them back, she took them to England. 
angry on her sister's behalf, Maggie wrote a letter to the New York Herald. She raged against New York's charlatans and humbug artists and gave more interviews with the kind of tell-all sensationalism that undoubtedly thrilled New York's rag readers. She blamed Leah for manipulating her and Kate. She blamed her mother for being a fool who let Leah take them away. And she blamed spiritualism and spiritualists for feeding the monster that destroyed their childhood. A journalist paid Maggie $1,500 to demonstrate how she and her sister had produced the raps with her toes. In 1888, Maggie got up on a stage at the New York Academy of Music and attempted to demonstrate how she and her sister had cracked the joints in their toes to make the rapping sounds that had first dazzled the audience in the Corinthian back in Rochester in 1849. Though the newspaper called it a, quote, death blow to spiritualism, her confession and later recanting of her confession, were simply ignored by the followers of spiritualism. By 1893, she and all her sisters were dead, and the National Spiritualist Association was formed in the United States. When Arthur Conan Doyle was writing his history in 1926, and Barbara Weisberg was writing her history in the early 2000s, they consulted similar sets of sources. Doyle had interviews with the Fox family that he collected himself or that friends had collected, and he had the autobiographies that Kate, Maggie, and Leah all published. Weisberg also had those sources at her disposal. They both also had access to the record of Maggie's 1888 speech in which she claimed that it had all been a trick. Both Doyle and Weisberg addressed this confession. Doyle, as a sort of rabid defender of spiritualism, claimed she was coerced by the journalists who paid her and that the journalists clearly did not know how the sounds came. And it is the author's, Doyle's opinion, that Margaret did not know either, end quote. Chapin and Stewart conversely accepted this confession as the only possible truth and so structured their analysis around it. A year after her published interview and toe-snapping demo, Maggie recanted her confession. She said that she'd been unduly influenced by Catholics and that spirits had instructed her to tell the truth, that of course her gifts were real and the spirit world still longed to be in touch with the living. Though Kate had given birth to her second son at Leah's home in Rochester, Maggie was truly estranged from her eldest sister. Leah died in 1890 before they could repair that rift. Maggie and Kate died within a year of each other in 1892 and 1893, destitute and rejected by most of their previous fans and followers. Well, sort of rejected. Spiritualism continued to lay its origin in the Fox Hydesville home, but after Maggie endeavored to confess to fraud, ostensibly for a handsome sum of $1,500, she lost the respect of her fans. And, of course, even though it seemed to some that the spark of spiritualism, the Fox sisters, should have been doused by the revelation of their trickery, it made absolutely no difference in the growth of the movement. The spiritualist church did persist, and hundreds of mediums continued to perform apparent miracles on stages and in parlors across the U.S. and Europe. As historian Simone Atali suggests, the skeptics in the revelations did little to put a damper on the success of mediums. In fact, in many cases, mediums encouraged the back and forth that skeptics fomented. When there was a controversy, that drummed up ticket sales. There was an equally lucrative business in debunking spiritualist mediums. Various organizations and individuals like Harry Price, 
Like Harry Price, I talked about in my Helen Duncan episode, and Harry Houdini tested mediums in laboratories, examining their bodies and props before performances, and wrote newspaper articles, pamphlets, and books explaining how tricks were done and who was a fraud. In a skeptic, a non-believer, they read those mythbusters and just take them at face value, disregarding evidence to the contrary. If the believers were willing to swallow anything in the name of spiritualism, the non-believers were unwilling to accept anything in the name of spiritualism. Yep, they're on polar opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, Each spectacular performance made more believers. Physical mediums cultivated a powerful nexus of mystery, scientific inquiry, and sensational demonstration. Alongside the public face of what contemporaries called spiritualism, embodied by mediums like Kate and Maggie Fox, but also by many others, there were quieter religious organizations coalescing. Sometimes those groups created communities like Lilydale, New York, which was established in 1879, first as the Casadega Lake Free Association, later renamed to Lilydale Assembly. Initially, these were camps places where believers and the curious and skeptical could gather during a particular season to commune with the dead. In the summer, they'd go to some place moderately comfortable like Western New York or Burlington, Vermont. In the winter, there were camps in Casadega, Florida and other warmer climes. These camps were modeled after Second Great Awakening camps. Um, during the Second Great Awakening, which we mentioned towards the top of the show, um, they there were sort of different camp meetings, they were called, for um, various religious revivalists that they would, they would attend there and kind of worship and get on with their revival selves. Um, and they would call these uh, camps. And it was often done in nature because um, communing with nature was sort of part of it. So this whole um, camp um, and camp season situation um, in Lilydale seems really reminiscent of that. By the early 20th century, most of the various church board of directors of these camps no longer sanctioned the physical mediums, but also couldn't afford to ban them from their little towns. The physical mediums, those who put on the spectacular shows, rented the cottages in towns like Lilydale and brought in the visitors who paid the daily gate fee and rented rooms at the hotels and town-owned cottages and bought food in the cafeterias and restaurants. When a skeptic came to town to test or debunk a resident medium, the kerfuffle was more likely to draw a bigger crowd than slow down business. Smart. The uncomplicated version of this story is the version you'll find today in the NC in the NSAC website, though it's probably not the only version of the story that spiritualists discuss amongst themselves. When we were in Lilydale, for example, our ghost walk leader discussed Maggie Fox's confession and the various controversies surrounding early physical mediumship. He left it to us, the visitors, to decide, which seems very on brand for spiritualism if you've been following along. The official stance of the National Association of Spiritualist Churches, the one you'll read in the history section of their website, leaves little room for doubt. There's no doubt that the girls were innocent, but gifted mediums who discovered their gifts in that house in Hydesville, New York, in 1848. That's why the Lilydale Assembly picked up the Hydesville house and moved it to their own little town in western New York on the Casadega Lake in 1916. Thousands made the trek down to Lilydale to visit the Fox House to touch its hallowed walls, to imagine those girls and their parents experiencing the phenomena that meant there was life after death. 
Even after the house burned down in the 1950s, a photo of the rustic cottage continued to be printed in the Lilydale Camp season program, along with the story of the Fox sisters and the Hydesville wrapping. That official story is kind of boring, without all the controversy. And the absence of doubt is interesting when you think about the actual story, because drumming up interest through controversy was essential to early evangelicalism and spiritualism. Maggie, Kate, and their elder sister Leah may have taken the title as the first mediums, but they were definitely not the last. They were followed by hundreds of other mediums of varying degrees of talent who seemed to demonstrate that the dead were waiting to speak to the living. Believers took the early accounts of the Fox sisters at face value, like Paul Gaunt's A Report of Mysterious Noises Heard in the House of Mr. John D. Fox, and bought into that simple version. They ignored reports to the contrary. They held fast the evidence that supported spiritualism and rejected the reports debunking mediums and their phenomena. As one skeptic pointed out in 1909, quote, being assured in their own minds that such phenomena do occur, they are prepared to swallow anything that may be offered in the name of spiritualism without strict investigation or inquiry, and consequently go where they can see the most for their admission fee, the most extraordinary phenomena. But the non-believers can succumb to the same problems as the believers. Instead of taking earlier accounts or interviews with the Fox sisters at face value, they take the confession at face value and ignore Maggie Fox's later recanting of her confession. When there is conflicting evidence, they choose the evidence that supports what they already believe. As historians, we care less about which version of the story is more true. What's more interesting is that these versions of the story coexisted, There were people who flowed from non-believer to believer and vice versa, but also people who just settled down in one of those versions of the story and stayed there, immovable. What's interesting is that the Fox sisters emerged in a moment when people needed them and were open to the phenomena they produced, but it was also a moment when there were people prepared to make a living testing them, debunking them, and mediums like them in the name of science and progress and reason. Spiritualism was a testing ground for scientific investigation into the afterlife, a foundation for radical ideas like women should have the right to vote and own property, and a predominantly white middle-upper class space that appropriated Native American and South Asian culture. Mediumship was a way for women to make independent incomes and have a voice in public spaces. And it was very much wrapped up in the spectacular Victorian entertainment culture of the day. We frequently say it's complicated on this show, and when it comes to the Fox sisters and the emergence of spiritualism, that is most certainly the case. Thanks for listening. Um, Check out our website at digpodcast.org. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's dig underscore history. Um, We also have a Facebook group called Dig History Pod Squad. It's been a little quiet lately because we've all been moving across the country and doing really wild and crazy things. Um, But normally we just share memes and discuss things and stuff like that. If you ask to join the group, I'll I'll approve you. And if you're a teacher out there, make sure you visit our website, digpodcast.org. We have all kinds of lesson plans, great brand new ones created by our uh, education consultant, Hannah Van Reed. And we have a swag store if you're looking for a little bit of Labor Day shopping because this baby's dropping on the day before Labor Day. There's a big old sale on Labor Day weekend. Get yourself some dig t-shirts for 35% off. Get your t-shirts with irreverent sayings Mm -hmm. on them. Get them now. Get them now while they're hot and cheap. Uh, Otherwise, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.
This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. And Daniel Douglas. Yeah, that's. <laughs> Is it Seabird or Sabert? I think I say Sabert. Okay. Notably, both Stewart and Chap. I would say Chapin, but you're saying Chapin, so. The official stance is absent doubt. Is that what you want me to say? Because mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. Okay. <laughs> well, the official stance of the National Association of... Okay, well, the part I don't understand is, is absent doubt. What does that mean? It doesn't have, there's no doubts. It's not, I don't think that's how you say that. Leaves little room for... There you go. Leaves... Okay. Better? Yeah, is absent doubt. Is that something you would say? Yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe it's a Vermont thing. I don't know. It was also, mm, I gotta say something about the Victorian stuff. And also you should say something about like how mediumship was a way, like, I guess it was a way for women to to make money. Like a it legitimized um, single women having an income, kind of. It was very much wrapped up, pun intended. <laughs> There's lots of stories in that sentence. Can I take one out? Yeah. I always forget that part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, people didn't really believe it. They thought it was just like animal bones. But ah, okay. Mmm, Do I sound okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm lying down. You're laying down. I'm lying down because my one foot is so asleep that it's like physically painful. And it's like really bothering me. I have to get it together. Oh, gosh. The fruit flies in here. I keep choking on them. Also, my mom's credit card expired and she couldn't figure out how to put her new credit card in Patreon. So that's why she's not a patron. <laughs> so it's on the list of to do's. <laughs> oh, OK. Uh, do we want to include that as well? To include her? No, yeah. it's fine. She doesn't listen. Okay. <laughs> she doesn't listen. The end. The end.